Praise the Lord. I really believe if you want to make a difference, the first step is you got to be different. Not weird. Some of us are already weird. We qualify as that. I mean different in a good kind of way. The Bible says we're to be the light of the world. Why does it say light? Because the world's dark. The Bible says we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. Why, why salt? Because the world is a bitter place sometimes. What Jesus is saying is that if we want to make a difference, we've got to be different from that which we want to affect. We want to impact and we want to touch. Would you help me in thanking all of our musicians today for a job well done in the worship today? I want to say one more time uh, to all the educators here today on behalf of our entire church, thank you, thank you, thank you for being part of our services. We hope that you've already been blessed and uplifted, and helped, and inspired by what's taken place. I'm excited about a lot of great giveaways uh, to give away at the end of the service here in a few minutes, many of which actually were donated uh, and sponsored by corporate businesses in our community, and a lot of them are represented even in our congregation today, and so if that's you, I want to Thank you for your generosity, for making it possible for Fellowship Baptist Church to love on our educators and honor them in a tangible way today. But for the next few minutes, if I could have your attention, I, I want to speak to you from the Word of God about the topic of making a difference. Typically, when we think of difference makers, we think in terms of prominent, extraordinary kind of people such as the early educators that we studied, our early presidents we studied growing up, such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln. Innovative thinkers that we read about, like Thomas Edison and Albert Einstein and Isaac Newton and Henry Ford and the Wright brothers. Wealthy men that we hear about, as like the late Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. While all of those I mentioned have made a profound difference in their area of society, they only represent the minority of difference makers in our country. I submit to you that the majority of difference makers in our country throughout history, and even today, are made up of ordinary, everyday people living in ordinary, everyday places. People that never make the news. People who don't get a public platform. People who would never qualify themselves as Wealthy People who just go about their ordinary lives, but in doing so make an extraordinary difference. Sometimes without even knowing it. I'm convinced with all my heart today that among those people are our educators. Talking about administrators and teachers and coaches and paras and counselors and secretaries. Those who have given their lives to educate and impact the youth of our community. Think about it, educators influence our youth in literally every way. Intellectually, physically, emotionally, socially, and even spiritually. They tell me there are over 7,000 elementary through college-age students in our community alone, not including our sister communities in Kismet, Plains, Tyrone, and Turpin. And it's our educators, it's many of you who are here today that spend seven plus hours a day with them and over 35 hours a week with them and over 3,000 hours per school year with these thousands of young people. Young people that represent our future. The future of our families and our churches and our communities. There are future teachers and bankers. There are future lawyers and doctors and nurses and first responders and military personnel and government officials and even spiritual leaders. 
educators. You may be ordinary, everyday people, but I believe you have the potential to make an extraordinary difference in the lives of the next generation. And it shouldn't surprise us at all that God chooses very normal people for a very big purpose. After all, he is the one that chose just a shepherd boy named David to defeat, a, to, to defeat Goliath the giant and to become the great king of Israel. He is the one that chose a stuttering, insecure man named Moses who was adopted as a child to free God's people out of slavery. He is the one that chose a little unnamed boy with a lunch of five loaves of bread and two little fishes to feed a crowd of over 5,000 hungry people. He is the one that chose a normal everyday fisherman named Peter to pioneer the early church and to write two books in the New Testament. Most importantly, he's the God that chose a poor teenage girl named Mary who lived in an obscure village named Nazareth to give birth to the Savior of the world. I'm just telling you today, God specializes in using ordinary people to make an extraordinary difference. We're going to learn from one of those difference makers in Scripture today named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was very ordinary. He was not a pastor. He was not a priest. He was not a warrior. He was not a king. He wasn't even a teacher. He was a cupbearer. He was a cupbearer for King Artaxerxes in the country of Persia, which meant that he was responsible for taste-testing the king's food and drink before he went and served it to the king because one of the most common ways to assassinate world leaders in that day was to poison their food. One day, this regular and ordinary guy named Nehemiah heard some news that would eventually change the course of his life forever. You see, 140 years before the book of Nehemiah was ever recorded, Nehemiah's homeland, which was Jerusalem, had been attacked and destroyed. In fact, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians, under the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar, attacked Jerusalem. They burnt down Solomon's temple to the ground. In fact, they burnt every temple to the ground. But worse than that, they destroyed the walls and gates of the city, which meant that the people were now vulnerable and they had no protection. And that ushered in the powerful, intimidating, uh, uh, ruthless Babylonian army, which took tens of thousands of Jews captive. Fast forward decades later, 50,000 of those Jews that were once captive were freed. They decided to move back to Jerusalem and they wanted to try and rebuild their community. Yet they arrived to a city that had no walls, no protection, no leadership, no economic structure, virtually no hope. That's where the normal, everyday cupbearer named Nehemiah comes in. Because he hears about this. If you've got your copy of God's Word, it'll be in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. Here's where he first hears about the news in verse number 2. That Han and I, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah... And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So here's Nehemiah, an ordinary man, yet he hears about a huge problem. His people want their homeland restored, but they need a leader. They need direction. They need a vision. Well, that means Nehemiah, because he heard about the problem, has just been given an extraordinary opportunity to make a big difference. But how would someone like him do it? He was just an ordinary cupbearer. How would a cupbearer lead the way 
for an entire city to be rebuilt. He's not a contractor. He's not an architect. He can't design a blueprint for the city. He can't build a wall that will hold up against all the enemy's attacks. But spoiler alert, he did. And he did it remarkably well. In fact, he did it in only 52 days. And today I want to show you how. Because by studying how he did that, we learn five practical ways that ordinary people can make an extraordinary difference. Here's the first thing we learn. Difference makers bear the burden personally. After Nehemiah heard the news, the verse says in verse 4, And it came to pass when I heard these words, watch, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days. His heart was broken. He was devastated. I would say he was burdened. Now think about this. It would have been easy for Nehemiah just to pass on the burden to somebody else. Just to let it go in his ears and out the other one. You know why? Because he was a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. That's where he was stationed. When you're a thousand miles away from the problem, you feel helpless and you just maybe say a token prayer and send a postcard. On top of that, he was enjoying the comforts of the palace. He was taste testing the king's coffee and eating his pancakes every morning. That's the best coffee you can get, I guarantee it. He could have just pushed the pain away. But you know what he did? He let the pain in. In other words, it didn't just stay in his head for something for him to think about. It traveled 18 inches down into his heart and settled in. And when a burden goes from your head to your heart, it first goes in your eyes. And then when it goes into your head, down 18 inches into your heart, it compels you to make a difference. It stirs you. It bothers you. You can't shake it. And that's when you learn to, bur- to, to bear the burden personally. Can I ask you, educator today, church member today, what breaks your heart? What burdens you today? When you think about the next generation in our community, most of which fill our schools, what breaks your heart about that generation? What challenges compel you to want to make a difference? According to the Kansas Communities That Care website, our county is the number two, number two in the state for teen pregnancy. Teen suicide is the second largest killer of teens. Nearly 40% of the students in Seward County alone reported feeling sad or hopeless every day for two weeks or more. Eight out of every ten teenagers in America graduate without their virginity, but sometimes that's not their choice because nationally, one in every five girls are sexually abused before they're 18. In our district specifically, in our community, there's a huge problem with parental involvement, meaning the lack thereof. Sometimes teachers have to be moms before they can be teachers. They have to make sure their student has a breakfast and and a coat before they can teach them math. Because of the lack of parental involvement in our community, many of our students go to school feeling unloved and overlooked and not appreciated, which then leads to behavioral choices in which they act out in order to get that attention or misbehave because they just aren't sure how to reconcile the hurt in their heart any other way. Sometimes our students come to school, I already said it, incredibly distracted and burdened because unexpectedly, this is unique to our community, unexpectedly one of their parents got deported leaving our counselors and social workers with the task of pointing these young, confused people in the right direction. These are just a few examples, and I could mention many more, but let me ask you, what burdens you? I'm not asking you what burdens you in India or China 
or Africa. I'm asking you, what burdens you in liberal Kansas? What burdens you in Tyrone, Oklahoma? What burdens you in Turpin, Oklahoma? What burdens you at Southwestern Heights? You know why I ask that? Because you have to identify it, and here's why. The burden you bear often reveals the difference you will make. That's the indicator. That's the alarm. That's the internal alert that God is telling you to make a difference. When you just can't shake it. I'm going to challenge our educators today and everybody in here. Don't just keep a God-given burden in your head. Go about your day and hope that somebody somewhere will take care of it and meet that need and solve that problem and touch that life, but you're just going to go on teaching your class. No, difference makers bear a burden personally. Secondly, difference makers seek God faithfully. Because after he cried, he didn't stay there. came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept in more than certain days. And fasted, that means he went a time without food. And then he prayed. He prayed before the God of heaven. This is just the first of 12 recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah. Showing us that Nehemiah had this rhythm in his life. Before he did anything for God, he talked to God. Before he tried to make a difference in somebody else's life, he tuned his heart to the God of heaven who would infuse power in his life to do so. And I want you to know something, church. He didn't just utter a few token words so as to soothe his conscience and say he did and send a postcard down the road. No, in fact, verse 1, we didn't read it. But when he first heard the news, the Bible says it was in the month Chislu, which is the Hebrew month equivalent to somewhere around November or December our time. And then when he actually acted on the burden, it was the month Nisan, which was four months later. This wasn't four seconds of prayer, four, four minutes of prayer, four hours of prayer. This was four months of seeking God faithfully. Because Nehemiah knew that if he was going to make any lasting difference, he first needed the power and the help and the direction of an almighty God in his life. Did you know that what you pray about reflects what you really believe about God? Consider that. Because here's most Christians' prayer. It basically consists of three things. Dear God, bless this food. Keep me safe. Help me to have a good day. Amen. If you're really spiritual, say amen. So most Christians, based on that, believe God has the power to help them not get indigestion from their meal, get ran over by a car, and get along good at work. I don't know about you, but I serve a God a lot bigger than that. Difference makers know the importance of seeking the God of heaven. Here's why. Because they know that the burden they bear personally is too big for them to handle by themselves. They know that the problem is too complicated to solve on their own. They know the road is too dark to navigate by themselves. Difference makers know that every time they go to educate a child, they need help of God. Somebody said if prayer isn't necessary to accomplish your vision, then your vision isn't big enough. Would to God we'd have some educators that believe in the power of prayer. Would to God we'd have some difference makers in here that realize that the task they face every day in the classroom is more than just teaching kids how to read or teaching kids how to write or teaching kids how to solve a math problem. Would to God, I hope you're listening, that we'd have some educators in here that would realize they must have the help, the strength, the power, the direction of God every day because they face a task of not just influencing the mind but touching a heart and God willing, changing a life. 
I think it would be good if some teachers and administrators and paras and coaches and counselors would leave here today with a couple other educators and get a plan to pray together every morning before you go into your building. Pray in the parking lot if you have to. Pray in the teacher's lounge. Pick a classroom early in the morning and seek God together. Don't let them pull prayer out of our schools. I know there's, with, I know there's limitations, but you can pray. You can get other teachers, other difference makers together and say, God, give us what we need today. Difference makers bear the burden personally. Seek God faithfully. Number three, difference makers define the vision clearly. We're going to get real practical here. Verse 4, chapter 2 says this. Then the king said unto me, for what dost thou make request? So watch here. Nehemiah had a burden. He sought God for four months. God gave him the green light, gave him the direction he needed. He couldn't shake the burden. It was bothering him too much. So he said, I'm going to go to the king because in that day you didn't, just didn't give your two weeks notice and leave. He wasn't working for Walmart. He's working for, for, for the nation, of the, the area of Persia. He's working for the king of Persia. So he's got to go and ask his permission. He's got to get a blessing granted from the king. And, and, and so the king said, what do you want, Nehemiah? Let me tell you what Nehemiah didn't say. He didn't list a, a general sense of uh, uh, just generalities and... and, and Huh, you know, just kind of beat around the bush a little bit. He didn't say, you know what, King? I've been sipping your tea for a while now. And it's great and all, but I think I got a bigger burden than tasting your pancakes every morning. You know, I've got an Aunt Martha down in Jerusalem. She has three boys. One's named Mickey. He's been my favorite cousin since the first grade. And, and you know, King, he, he sent me a link to an article that showed a picture of of Jerusalem, you know, they're, they're kind of a mess down there, you know, and, and, and their walls are all falling down and stuff, and i, I got to be honest with you, King, I've always wanted to go on a mission trip and help people build things, and, you know, they get cool t-shirts and wear fanny packs and make a difference for Jesus, and I, I just kind of wanted to do that, and so, you know, I, I, Aunt Martha mentioned that I'm kind of in with you and all of that, and maybe you could send out a, you know, a few emails and and try to get some donations for me because, you know, it's a thousand miles over there to Judah. And, and, and listen, I, I've got a bad back, so I can't have a Chevy camel. I've got to ride on a Cadillac camel. And that's going to take a lot of donations. And so I need to get in front of the eight ball here. And, I, you know, since I'm in good with you, King Art and all, I just, I just want to know what you think. What do you think? He didn't do that. The verse says exactly what he did. Short, concise, clear. End of the point, look at it, put it up there, Dustin. And I said unto the king, if it pleased the king, and if thy servant had found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. He defined his vision clearly. He knew exactly what it was God was leading him to do, and he communicated that clearly to the king. Here's what I found. For most people, it's not a lack of caring that's your problem. It's a lack of clarity. So let me ask you today, what is God leading you to do? Maybe he's even put something on your heart in this service. Why is that important? Because if you can't define it, you won't do it. We all know there's general problems in our community. We all know the, gener the next generation is in trouble if someone doesn't intervene in their life. We can all speak in generalities. We can all put a nice shirt on and a fanny pack and act like we're doing something for Jesus. I'm talking about defining the vision clearly. What is God leading you to do? Is he leading you to pray more for, name, by your, for your students by name? 
Meaning you know that, that, that the greatest battle you can fight for your students is the one on your knees. Is that what he's put on your heart today? Is he leading you to encourage your students who are hurting the most to do more than influence their minds, but to actually transform their heart and to be for them at school what they don't have at home? Is he leading you to change the culture within your own school building to take it from a culture of finger pointing and criticism to problem solving and optimism? What is God leading you to do? You have to define your vision clearly if you want to make a lasting difference. Difference makers bear the burden personally. Seek God faithfully. Define the vision clearly. And fourthly, difference makers make their plans carefully. You see, Nehemiah didn't just tell the king or ask the king, can I go build Jerusalem? He knew exactly how he wanted to do it because a goal without a plan is just a wish, right? And so he gets clear, verse 7. He says this, Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come into Judah. He wanted some protection. That's the first part of his plan. In the second part is verse 8, And and a letter unto Asaph the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber, that's like me lumber, to make beams for the gates of the palace which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. He had a careful plan. I need protection and I need provision. Because a goal without a plan is just a wish. And I'm looking at a lot of educators today that know a lot about plans. You make weekly plans, lesson lesson plans for how to conduct your classroom every single week. Some of you are going through this gigantic redesign where you're formulating a plan and then adjusting the plan, formulating a plan and adjusting the plan. I'm looking at some coaches today that before you go and play the team on Friday night, you get a game plan. You watch video, you scout a little bit, you... Examine your personnel, see who's injured, see who's shooting well, see, see who, who's playing good defense. And then you put together a unique plan for that specific game. I know you know what plans are, but let me ask you this. What's your plan to act on your burden? I'm not asking you to have a one-year plan or a five-year plan or a ten-year plan. Let me give you a plan you can leave today with. Here it is. Do the next right thing. That's the plan. Do the next right thing. You know why doing the next right thing is important? Because success isn't accomplishing something big in the future. It's doing the next right thing today. We're not going to solve the problems of the next generation by coming up with this gigantic 25-year plan that'll overwhelm us. I'm just asking you to go back to school tomorrow and do the next right thing. Is God leading you to pray for your students by name every day? The next right thing is to create a detailed prayer list or a prayer journal or plan a place and time to talk to God every day on behalf of your students. Is God leading you to show tangible love to those students in in your class who, who are hurting the most? The next right thing might be to drop a personal note of encouragement on their desk before they show up tomorrow. Or to attach a $5 Sonic gift card to their test sheet after you grade it, even if they get an F. Is God leading you to help change the culture within the walls of your school? Here's the next right thing. Don't complain yourself. Uh Uh-oh. If you got that one down, then go to the next thing and resolve to write a handwritten personal note of encouragement and positivity to every staff member in your building at some point this school year. That could be the next right thing for you. Because success isn't accomplishing something big in the future. It's doing the next right thing today. What's your plan for tomorrow? What's the next right thing for you? Difference makers bear the burden personally. They seek God faithfully. They define the vision clearly. They make their plans carefully. And lastly, here's the icing on top of the cake. Difference makers inspire people passionately. 
You see, Nehemiah formulated this plan, had this vision, got permission from the king. Eventually he had to get on the camel and he had to go all the way back to Jerusalem. He traveled a thousand miles. And the whole time, I guarantee you, he's thinking this with every bump of the Middle East. He's thinking this. Are they even going to trust me? I'm a cupbearer. I don't even know how to hammer a straight nail on a wall. I don't know anybody. Am I going to be able to inspire anybody? Well, he went back and he introduced himself. And when he did, watch what their response was, verse 17. Then I said unto them, you see the distress that we're in. This is a speech. How Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates are ever burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. Here's their response. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Boy, it's that feeling. He must have had that same feeling that that teachers have when they get total buy-in from the class. When coaches have, when they, they put a game plan together and they put their kids on the court and their kids actually do what they asked them to do. Like that feeling, like, this is awesome. For once, I inspired somebody to take action. And he just didn't inspire them. I mean, he like gave them a jolt of dynamite because in 52 days, they rebuilt these walls. They didn't have a Home Depot. They didn't have extension cords. They didn't have electronic drills. They had, they had timber cut down from the forest, dropped off from Asaph, whoever that guy was. And they got to building a wall around the entire city and did it in 50 days. John Wesley said this, light yourself on fire with passion and people will come from miles to watch you burn. I like that. You might be thinking, Pastor Tyler, that's motivating. And I have this burden and I want to make a difference. But I'm just a cupbearer. I just teach math. Just do PE. Just an assistant principal. Just a counselor. Uh, Who am I? Listen closely, please. What you're burdened about today is not an accident. No matter how big or small it may be, and no matter who you are, you know why? Because the burden you bear reveals the difference God is calling you to make when you leave this building. You may never rebuild an entire city. You may never lead an army. You may never have a public platform. You may never have a ton of money to leverage your influence. But I'm here to tell you, if you bear the burden personally, if you learn to seek God faithfully, if you define your vision clearly, and you make your plans carefully, you will inspire somebody passionately. It may only be one student. But you never know how that one life may go on to touch many, many lives that you could have never touched yourself. Such was the case with a young, less than fortunate student named Teddy Stalin. Jean Thompson was his teacher. She stood before her fifth grade class on the first day of school and she told them all a lie. Because she said, I will love every student the same. It was a lie because she had a student named Teddy that sat in her class as a fifth grader, slumped over in his desk with an I don't care attitude. 
And she admittedly struggled to love him like she loved the other students in her class. Miss Thompson looked over Teddy's file. She was surprised at what she read. His first grade teacher wrote, Teddy's a bright child with a ready laugh. He does his work neatly. He has good manners. He's such a joy to be around. His second grade teacher wrote, Teddy is an excellent student, well liked by his classmates, but he's troubled because his mother has a terminal illness and life at home must be a struggle. His third grade teacher wrote, Teddy continues to work hard, but his mother's death has been so hard on him. He tries to do his best, but his father doesn't show much interest and his home life will soon affect him if some steps aren't taken. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy's withdrawn, doesn't show much interest in school, he doesn't have many friends and sometimes sleeps in class. He's tardy and he could become a big problem. Well, Christmas rolled around when he was in the fifth grade. It was time for the class party and all the students began to give Miss Thompson gifts and she opened them up and they were very, very fancy gifts. But then came Teddy. He gave her a gift that was oddly wrapped in a grocery store bag. She was nervous to open it up in front of the class. She found a rhinestone bracelet with several of the stones missing and a half-full bottle of perfume. The kids snickered and laughed. But she wore the bracelet proudly in front of them. After class, Teddy stayed after just to tell the teacher, Ma'am, you smell just like my mama used to. That pierced the heart of Miss Thompson. She committed to herself that day to love every student the same, including Teddy. So at the end of the school year, Miss Thompson found a note under her door. It was from little Teddy. It said, out of all the teachers I've had in elementary school, you are my fave. But that wasn't the last note Miss Thompson received from Teddy. Six years later, Miss Thompson, I want you to know that I graduated high school third in my class. You're still my favorite teacher. Love, Teddy. Four years later, Miss Thompson... I want you to know that today I'll graduate from college with the highest of honors. Things have been tough, but I stuck with it. And you're still my favorite teacher. Love, Teddy. Four years after that, Miss Thompson, I want you to know that as of today, I'm no longer Teddy. I'm now officially Theodore F. Stollard, M.D. P.S. You're still my favorite teacher. One year later, Miss Thompson, I want you to know that I've met a girl. I'm going to marry her. But my dad died a few months ago. As you know, my mom's been dead for many years. Would you mind sitting in the pew that would normally be reserved for the mother of the groom? Miss Thompson did just that. And she wore that same rhinestone bracelet that Teddy gave her for a Christmas gift in his fifth grade year. As Teddy was walking after the, out after the wedding, he leaned over to tell Miss Thompson, thank you for believing in me, making me feel important. P.S., you're still my favorite teacher. There's a Teddy in every class. There's a Teddy on every bus. There's a Teddy that suits up on every team. There's a Teddy that comes to every Sunday school class of our church. might be a teddy in these first three rows. Every teddy needs a Miss Thompson. Needs a Mr. Thompson. 
educators, I'm asking you, if you'll leave today motivated and determined to not just affect a mind, to touch a heart. Because when you touch a heart, you change a life. And that life that you touch, if but one, might go on to touch hundreds of thousands later on. At our church, we end our sermons with a time of prayer. We call it an invitation because it's an invite to the altar. It's definitely not mandatory, certainly not for our guest. But our church likes to respond to the word, for our God has spoken to their heart. We come up and kneel at the altar. We pray, and sometimes it means we confess our sin to God. Sometimes we, we just want to ask God for help. Sometimes we want to throw our burdens at Him because the Bible says, casting all your care upon Him because He careth for you. All kinds of reasons we come forward for an invitation. But I want to get very specific for this invitation. I want to ask all the educators, if they don't want to come forward, to at least pray in their heart. And pray this prayer to God today. God, help me be a difference maker. That's it. Why? Because you can't do it without God. I'm here to tell you, he's not just some cosmic Santa Claus in the sky. Listen to me, he created the world. Six literal days with a spoken word. And he sent his only begotten son to die and save you from your sin so that you could go to heaven. And he doesn't sit idly by watching as you struggle to affect the next generation. He has his arms open wide waiting for you to, to ask him for his help. I hope that you walk out of this room today knowing at least one thing. Without God, I can't do it. Care how much schooling you have. I don't care how many years of experience you have with the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do more to make a difference than you could ever dream. I want to ask you to come just a few minutes and just say, God, help me make a difference. But then I want to invite our church family because we need a covenant together, church, to pray for these educators. This is a great opportunity, not just to honor them tangibly, to challenge them from the word of God, to put a video together to honor what they do. This is a great opportunity. The greatest thing we could do for our educators is not give them a new espresso machine. It's pray for them. For the next few minutes as the piano begins to play, I'm going to pray out loud. I'm going to invite our church family to flood the altars. And if you're a guest or an educator and you just want to fall in line with them, it's nothing formal. You pray and go back to your seat. That's it. But I pray that you will pray the words of this psalm we're going to worship with. It says, Lord, I need that's our heart. Would you stand to your feet, bow your head, and close your eyes as I pray. The invitation is for you to come now. Father, as folks.